Hello, and welcome to Evoking the Sublime, the podcast where I sit down with video game developers, composers, and other people who worked on games to talk about the history and creation of a video game. My name is Shay, and it's a pleasure to have you listening to this episode. Today, I'm joined by a brilliant BAFTA-nominated composer whose career started in Oberlin Conservatory of Music. From there, he scored commercials. His first noted work was on a short internet film called Loom. His career has taken him into the world of gaming, scoring The Unfinished Swan, Hohokam, Gorogoa, Death Stranding, Eastward, Solar Ash, and Halo Infinite, among many other games. He also runs Waveplant Studios, an audio consulting agency whose focus is on creating an immersive sonic profile. Please join me in welcoming Joel Corlitz. Joel, how are you doing today? I'm well, Shay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You you definitely did your homework. I'm impressed. <laughs> no, I you know, I, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, and so it didn't really feel like homework to me. It felt like just, Good. oh yeah, he did this game. Oh yeah, he did this game. I forgot he did all these amazing projects. Thank but, you. Yeah, no worries. I, I, I wanted to tell you if a quick, very, very quick story, because I, I, I'm selfish, but I figure you will appreciate it, is that when I started this podcast, I, um, I didn't have a name for it. And the very first interview I did was with Ian Dallas. Oh, did you really? Oh, yeah, wow. that was the very okay. first interview I did. And I did that for What Remains of Edith Finch. And okay. when we were doing that episode, he was talking about the creation process, and he said that when he was making what remains of Edith Finch, that he, what he was trying to do, what he's trying to create with that game was something akin to evoking the sublime. And that's how the title of this podcast came to be. And I, I know you have connection with him because you worked on the unfinished Swan. Yeah. I, no, I love that. Yeah. He, he's a, such a fantastic guy. And, um, I, do you still do you still keep in touch with him, or is that like when you work on projects, it's a keep in touch for for the duration of the project and then move on kind of situation? I think that's generally how it goes, and I, it's for no other reason than that. that's just sort of how I how I tend to work often on projects where you're where you're in it, you're in the thick of it, and then um, you know the the game comes out, the developer starts on a new project, and I start on another project. Um, so it is kind of this, you know, you, you're in touch for, for a temporary amount of time. Um, not always. I mean, sometimes we'll stay in touch. You know, it's, it's interesting because my relationship um, with Ian and Giant Sparrow was, was always kind of through Sony. I worked with Sony's music department on The Unfinished Swan. So, so Ian was, I, I know that he was, was weighing in and, and had feedback about what we were working on, but I was never in direct contact with him. So uh, we had tea at the last GDC that I remember attending in person. Um, but that's a good reminder to get back in touch. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, good. Yeah. I, I, that's interesting that, um, you, like you worked through Sony and then you were able to spend time with Ian outside of that, which is, I well, and that was just me reaching out and being like, "Hey, you know, I did music for 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 Swan. We should um, meet in person." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I, I did this thing for your project. Yeah. Let's actually, you know, 
you know, talk. That's yeah. awesome. Which is rare. It's rare to, I think, you know, I, I love working with a music supervision department. Um, I feel like it always pushes me to become a better composer. I think sometimes it can um, make it so the developer is this entity that is just sort of someone I don't come into much contact with. It's just a different process, you know, and I've, I've worked in all, di- you know, lots of different, different processes. I don't know what, exactly what the plural of that is, but <laughs> I don't yeah, either. I mean, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to make something so personal for someone, but you don't really have a, a definitive face or identity for that person or that entity. It's just, I'm hired. This is what I'm going to work on. It's, it's an interesting, not a bad, just an interesting and different process. Something that I personally have no experience with. So it has to be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it tends to be, um, you know, in some capacity, I think it's the norm for someone like me who is essentially a, like a hired gun, you know, on, Mm. on different projects. My, my role is to, and I think, this comes just with years of experience. My role really is to get into the concept of the project in, as fast as possible and start speaking the design language of that, of that project and express it musically. Um, and really essentially what, you know, the corporate world calls onboarding, um, is the same, it's the same process. And it's my job to get onboarded as quickly as I can and start communicating kind of that, that language musically. And, um, I think in, in the case of, this, you know, Giant Sparrow signed a, a very similar deal with Sony, I think. I mean, I don't, know the, I don't know the details of their deal, but I do know that it was a... They were incubated by Sony much the same way that that game company was. Mm. Um, and I, I think that they asked Sony to be their music supervision department because it was something they needed help with, and it's something Sony is very good at. Um, so, you know, in, the, in, in that situation, I was working with the music supervisor on The Unfinished Swan, and it was... I mean, that was my first game. It was an incredible experience. I'm glad I had the the guidance of their music supervision department because I think it it helped me understand what what went into a game. Yeah, it and, almost probably acted as like training wheels in a way. Well, what was really the training wheels is all the stuff that I did when I was a commercial composer. Mm. Um, I think all the stuff that happened before, really anything notable came out that, it, you know, like Loom. Loom was the first specific piece you mentioned but before i did loom i had worked for eight years as a commercial composer right and you're doing commercials i I believe yeah which for me it was yeah like literally commercials like like television commercials i mean now you know they're on youtube but it's the same thing basically (laughs) and there's still there's still tv commercials and that's all that was a whole scene like music companies that hired composers that worked for ad agencies that and i think for me the training wheel component of it was You'd walk in one, you'd walk into the studio and this was, we were on staff. Like, so I think these days there's a lot of hiring freelance and, but we walked into the same studio all, all day. There were six of us, three, three senior composers and three junior composers. I was, I, I did this fresh out of college. We didn't know what we were going to be writing. And so we would get like a brief that day. Oh, you're going to be writing this for Skittles and it has to be whimsical and fun, you know, and whatever, like whatever the adjectives were. And we'd talk about it and we, we just bang, we just bang a bunch of stuff out. And then we get feedback and sometimes the client would love it. Sometimes they wouldn't, sometimes they would want changes. Sometimes they'd want to combine things. And so what it did for me is it just got me into this 
process of, of getting into a concept quickly, executing something based on that concept, and then figuring out how to communicate about what, how to change it to make it something that really, I mean, to put it in its absolute basic terms, the client would buy. Mm. Um, because, and that was the thing I learned, I think really quickly was nobody wants, nobody's here to pay you for the privilege of working with you. You have to be able to execute something that someone needs for their project. And that right. does not make you any less of a creator or it actually only makes you a better communicator. And so for me, it was like this, this job is about communication. Yeah. I, um, I can imagine like, especially too, with you being able to have other people there to kind of bounce ideas off of when you get something put on your uh, metaphorical desk or maybe physical desk at that time of <laughs> we want something lush. Well, what does that mean in terms of audio? What, what, when, when I think about this commercial and they, this product and they say they want a lush soundscape, what does that mean in terms of this product? And then you can bounce those ideas off of each other. And that helps you kind of define your own voice as well as maybe taking inspiration from others or just developing your own ideas through a conversation. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's, it's necessary. I mean, that communication around the creative process is such a necessary part of creating the right fit for something. And I think what's, I mean, you, you really hit on it, which is music. M music is so subjective. There's no objective language to talk about music. I mean, there's, there's really good attempts. I think music theory is one of them, you know, yeah. <laughs> music theory is sort of, but they made up music theory based on the music. So it's, and then, you know, one serves the other one, obviously, but right. I mean, no one means the same thing when they describe something as lush. So the first thing to figure out is what does this, what is the decision maker, the person that's driving this creative process, what do they mean when they say it? And so really the question to ask is, well, what, what music sounds lush to you? Mm -hmm. And it may be completely different um, assessment than someone else. I mean, the, the one word that always sticks out to me and probably will for the rest of my career is energy. You know, the idea that music has to have energy, um, more or less of it. You know, that's usually a, a huge part of what I'm iterating on is how much energy is in the music. And, um, it can mean to something totally different to someone. It can mean faster, it can be as simple as that. It can mean subdividing the beat more. Some people, for some people, it can be, mean intensity. And intensity is different than energy in some ways because it can work when it's slow. So really, I think that that whole onboarding process I'm talking about is, is sort of about trying to get on, on the same page about the way that we communicate about music. Right. And really, it's about me getting on their page because mm. I can't get... The, I, don't want to t I don't want them to change the way they talk about music. I want... I want to understand the mind of my collaborator and that for me, commercials doing that in a, every day in a sort of in a non-attached way was, was an incredible training ground for what I do now, which is mostly video games, although not limited to video games um, where that's, I mean, that's really what I do is I'm, I write music, but really what I do is I communicate about mm. music and I try to turn that conversation into something that fits these worlds we're creating. That's, that's, I'm really happy you had that experience. I think that is <laughs> such a good thing um, for any kind of creative mind is to have the ability to, um, for lack of a better word, kind of chop it up with other people in the industry to figure out 
what what you what you can bring to the table essentially um yeah you had you had mentioned that you know energy was is is a is a big part of that process is that kind of what drew you to music early on is not just energy but kind of the ability to auditorily shape not shape express emotions or what what was the kind of spark early on that made you think man music is awesome i want to do that well yes to all of that i mean really it's i think for me i i do tend to sort of um take in the world through emotions and and i was i mean as and i think this is one of those things that probably you know everyone that makes music says but i think for me, I was so captivated as a kid by just the ability for a piece of music, even a piece of music with no words, to to communicate a feeling better than words ever could. And and I think that was compounded by a fascination with electronic sounds, as specifically sounds of, of early video game systems. Because like you said, that is what allows you to, not only can you shape emotions with a piece of music, but when you have total control over your palette and you can actually shape the sounds that are now, of course, I mean, every composer does that to some extent, even if you're working with an entirely orchestral palette, you have an incredible degree of control. Um, I was always drawn to electronic sounds and just the, the idea that you can create any sound you want. Um, and then, so you have control over the palette and you have control over the composition. I mean, this makes me sound like a total control freak and I don't know, I, maybe composers <laughs> no, no, are, I, I, I don't think it would be saying, wrong <laughs> for, for some composers to, I, I don't know. Um, that's, all, that's all right. But, I mean, if, if, if you're putting your heart and soul into it, I think there, there has to be some level of control there. Right. I mean, that, that is, that is a, to me, that is a, whenever I've created music because I, I play the drums that to me, that is a representation of my soul if you believe yeah. in that sort of thing. So of course I want to have some kind of control over that. And you know, I guess if for me, it's not as much about control as it is. It's sort of, I think about it like a laboratory and it's like, it's so much fun to have to, to experiment with different combinations of sounds and different combinations of, of compositional techniques and, and figure out the best expression of both of those things. I mean, to yeah. me, there, there is something about 8-bit sounds and the elemental quality of those waveforms that is not just about nostalgia. I think, I mean, my kids listen to, I mean, I guess, you, you know, now I, I, chiptune is a, is a word that I tend to sort of not like to use because I think it's so specific. It's almost like a modern expression, but my kids like to listen to old, like video games and and there's something in, there's something there that's elemental that I think is like, is timeless and and is in, in a lot of ways, it's the most idiomatic, perfect expression of a lot of those pieces. And I think that stuck with me as a kid. I mean, I guess we all tend as creators, like we all tend to sort of be formed by a certain time period in our lives. And for me, it was 8-bit video games. Yeah, I like it's, it's kind of crazy to me that I think younger generations of people can listen to 8-bit music or even 16-bit music and they feel like this feels nostalgic, but I'm not old enough to have felt that nostalgia. And to me yeah. that like that speaks beyond the word nostalgia. It, it goes deeper than that. And I don't, I, you know, throughout my life, I've been kind of searching for what it is 
specifically how to define and i don't even know if it's definable what it is about that music that just feels so i don't know if natural is the right word or it just feels so inviting i i, I it's it's for me it's indescribable that why that music is so easily other people can connect with it and yeah. it spans generations it does i don't know why either yeah but i've never been able to define it <laughs> i think some of it is because it is it's so the palette those sounds are so simple and and because of the way those systems operated you know there were no effects there were there you just had these four waveforms i mean really mm-hmm. you had you had three well, if you count noise as one, I mean, I'm thinking specifically about the NES and it has two pulse waves, a triangle wave and a noise and a noise channel. And right. some had a, had a sample playback engine, but that was on the cartridge. Mm. I tend to not get into that. I did, <laughs> I, so I teach a music for games class and we we're actually doing this this week. Uh, no, just talking what, about you, you what I, I saw that last night. I should have written it down. Which university are you currently teaching? Is it? It's at Columbia. So Columbia is in Chicago. It's technically a college, although this is a master's program. So oh, okay. um, it's a college that does have a few master's programs. This is called this. This program is called music composition for the screen. Um, and it's a two year program. And my class music for games is on the second year of the program. That's every week. Um, and it's it actually just got rated. The, it's behind USC. It is the number two. Um, film scoring program in the country right now which is ex- very exciting yeah. and we're, like, we're just in the middle of the country here in chicago which um you know it's it doesn't have the same production community that la has but it has a lot of talent and and, and a very different attitude and, and i mean it it's my fourth year in this program and it makes me really proud to be here um that I think some of it, though, awesome. sorry, I, I don't want to, do, but I just want to like come back and I think for me, what the mystery, this, the solution to this mystery of why does this music have, why did these, this music, this 8-bit video game music, why does it have resonance? And I think it's because you cannot hide behind production writing music for these simple waveforms. You have to write a good piece of music. I mean, of course, that's what we're all trying to do is write a good piece of music, right? But like it had to just be compelling. It had to have a good melody and there was nothing else to do like that. These systems didn't do anything other than like melody. So I think it really just boils down what, what you need to express with a good solid piece of music. Now I love ambient music. I mean, I couldn't have written the score to go Gora Goa on, on an eight bit system. Cause it's just, they don't do that kind of language right. stuff. But, but I think that there is something there where it's like, you just, there's nothing to hide behind. You have to just, you have to do what, the system wants, you know, what, what it's capable of expressing or nothing, I guess. Yeah. It, it kind of puts you in a, in a creative, not, not in a negative way, a creative constraint where it's like, these are the very specific ways you can operate. How creative can you get within those constraints? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And those, con- those constraints are very exciting. I think. I think so too. Cause like you said, that that's a part, all a part of, expanding your vocabulary as a composer or a musician and it allows you to not necessarily master but become adept at a, a style you weren't great at and you can introduce that into your own voice so it doesn't mean it has to become your voice but it becomes just another tool in your arsenal that you can pull out should the situation call for it yeah 
Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's what a lot of this is about. I think is just sort of exposing yourself to all these different ways of thinking about music and then knowing, knowing what to pull out when you need it. Right. Right. So I, I kind of want to transition just a little bit. There's no easy way to do that, unfortunately. So I kind of want to go into the process a little bit of now that you've been composing, not strictly just video game uh, soundtracks, but that's largely what you've currently been doing in the past 10 or so years. Can you kind of walk me through the process when a studio contacts you to work on an upcoming game and you agree to it? What is the process like for you now or recently to design and create that video game soundtrack it's always different um and that's what's so interesting and exciting i think about doing this is it's never quite the same i would say that my even though the two ends of the spectrum are not necessarily mutually exclusive i always take two roles and i think every composer probably takes two roles where i am i am on one on one side of that spectrum, I'm a consultant. I am there to help figure out what the game sounds like. On the other side of that spectrum, I am, I'm, I don't I don't know what the term is. I, I want to say executor, but that sounds that that sounds like executioner, and I'm <laughs> yeah, not. That's, that's not what I deadly. do. <laughs> yeah, I'm there to, but I'm there to execute that vision of what the score sounds like. And on a lot of projects, I end up doing both. On some. I'm there more to do one than the other. Um, I'm probably always doing more composing, but on, on some games, I'm, I'm there to do both. I'm there to figure out what the world sounds like. And, and really, um, and in that, you know, in that sense, there is a lot of stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor that no one ever hears. In fact, there is on every project, you know, on, on a, on a project like Halo Infinite, Halo already has its own sound. So they don't need my help to figure out what Halo sounds like. They need my help figuring out how to execute and and um, kind of shepherd a new vision for the next the next Halo universe or the, not universe, but the next you know Halo experience. Um, and how do we you know? I think the question is how do you link it to the past and how do you make it feel fresh and how do you preserve its heritage and i think that that's that's my job on something like that i'm not as much of a consultant i am there really to learn the design language of the world and then be able to communicate it in a way that feels um idiomatic it's almost like learning a language Mm. Um, on some projects i'm there to kind of invent that language um and so i think when i get a call about a new a new game my first question is what does this game sound like and and then and then we we figure out how to figure it out. And, and I think that that's just a, that's a conversation that gets started. It can happen over email. It can happen on, you know, on a video call, it can happen just what, but it takes time. I think is really the main thing is it just takes time and iteration and, and it takes a certain amount of like, you just have to be selfless about like, you just have to try stuff and not be afraid to like try stuff and we'll see if it works. And, and then you, and then you iterate on it and cultivate something together. Um, and then once you know the design language, that's where that's, I think that's in some, in some ways the hardest part of the project. And once you know that, then the rest of the project is then focused on creating content that fits that design language or, you know, executing that, that language that you've 
that you've created. So I would, you know, I'd say most projects involve all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some are a little bit more on one end of the spectrum and some are, are on the other. Yeah, I can imagine that, you know, through some of those conversations, I can imagine some clients or studios, devs, however you want to yeah. refer to them, they probably have a very clear-cut idea. Like you said, Halo Infinite or something like Death Stranding. They probably knew l- largely what they were going for. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Death Stranding, yeah. maybe not a perfect example, but something like Eastward or Gorgoa, maybe you had a little bit more flexibility there because... A little bit. I mean, I, and I would say Eastward is an interesting example because Eastward is a pixel art game. So we knew that we had to bring in elements of the past. I think really what my role on, on, the, on the consulting end of that, of that process was is how do we do that and still make this feel like, like it's true to itself? How do we, how do we avoid this trap of, of having things feel like pastiche or too much about nostalgia? So then the question I have as a composer, and I, I really ask myself and sort of try to answer myself by just exploring and, and talking is, well, what's the, what's the right balance of elements? I mean, we have to have some, some sounds that sound like the past. We have to have some sounds that sound like the present or the future or whatever. And how do we balance them? And then what's the, what's the unique balance that makes Eastward Eastward? Um, and really what, it, what makes Eastward Eastward is not just one thing. It's a whole bunch of things. And that's, I think where you've then created, you know, and this is what I strive to do is create a world that have some, uh, that has some complex, you know, complexity to it because you don't want to just be able to necessarily communicate that in one line. I mean, you, you, you know, you want it to be simple enough so that you can, but, um, but you also want at least, or I also want the, the, the vision to be kind of multifaceted and multidimensional. Right. Right. So you had actually mentioned something that I was going to ask about. Uh, I appreciate it too. You had mentioned that in the past that much of the music that you create and compose for a video game gets cut. Like there, there are a lot of tracks that people just don't hear. And that, that, that lines up with any musician who's like made an album. It's the same thing. That's why you have B sides and, things of that nature so i i actually had a two-part question that i written down that i was curious about have you ever been able to repurpose some of that music that you had to cut for a different project where it also fits and the second part would be is there a song that just absolutely broke your heart to cut (laughs) and then you, you have hopes that maybe someday in the future you can use it well so i mean as far as the idea of things getting cut I would say that it's it's not the same as finishing a song and then having it not make the album or and it's not the same as an actor who filmed a scene that then the editor or director decided just didn't fit into the movie. It's a little different than that. It is I would say the things that get cut like when I talk about the cutting room floor, it is a little different than the editorial process. It's really more like these are the iterations that got us to to the final expression of the game, but really they were stepping stones to get us there. Mm. So that's a lot of the music that I think the, the, the player or the listener never gets to hear. Um, but a lot of it was stepping stones. Now, that being said, there are pieces that do get cut from, from the soundtrack just because maybe there's not enough room or maybe there's like a better, a similar version that's maybe better. Eastward, I didn't cut anything. 
um thank god that ended up in the game like everything's (laughs) in the game everything that's in the game is on the soundtrack now there are a couple pieces that i think um there were slightly different versions of that that can happen that's very common too. things that got used for a trailer that might not be exactly the same as the music that's in the game there's just so many versions of everything that it's that that's just where that happens but i mean to answer the second part of your question i mean i yeah i do have a lot of material that didn't get used for whatever reason and i have found that i don't end up using it very very often and the reason for that is because it is I, I don't want to say that it's easier, but in some ways it is more direct and makes more sense to create something new for every project mm-hmm. because every, every world and every game and every process kind of deserves its own original material. I mean, it's what I do. And so I found that rather than try to re repurpose something, it just makes sense to create something new most of the time because ne- nothing, you know, creating original music is always about creating a fit for something and it's never quite the same fit. It's never quite the right fit if you try to use something different. Now that, you know, and of course, there are exceptions to everything. Um, Eastward's trailer, its launch trailer, used a track called Iron Carbine, which was actually a piece that I repurposed. Um, and I've, the reason I did it with Eastward is it, it was used, that piece was originally used for a, for a Kickstarter that didn't make its funding goal, a Kickstarter trailer for a game. Um, it was the piece that the developer of Eastward saw and got in touch because of. Wow. So even though that project failed, you know, failed, it, nothing is ever like a dead end, you know. And I put that out there. I was really happy with the music. The project didn't go anywhere, but it did get it got us in touch. So five years later, Pixpill, the developer of Eastward, was asking. They said, you know, we've got this last trailer, our release date trailer. I said, why don't you use this piece for it? I mean, it kind of has the right tone. It has an eight bit, like, you know, it has a, it has like a pixel art, like, or compatible. It's compatible with pixel art. I don't know. It's funny because Eastward is not really an eight bit looking game, but no, I think any game that's, that, that has something to do with the past, at least deserves maybe some eight bit sensibilities. And that's where you start to sort of break the rules a little bit. Anyway, that's a different thing. Yeah. And, and so we use that. We used it for the release date trailer for Eastward and it felt right because it almost felt like coming full circle. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I I hope that there there's a possibility and an interest for, from you that if you were to ever like go through some of those tracks that didn't make the cut that maybe you could repurpose them into like a personal CD or something. Maybe. Yeah. That I mean, would be not, cool. There's not too many on Eastwood. You know what's interesting is like there there are a couple bonus tracks on the Japanese collector's edition and they're so that's what, yeah, that's what those were. Different versions of things that maybe didn't make the vinyl cut. Good thing I live in Japan. I'm going to have to go find those. Yeah. I didn't know those yeah. existed. <laughs> I'm going to have to get that now. Um, when I heard that you were one of the three composers for the Halo Infinite soundtrack, I found that really fascinating because I can't imagine the process of, you know, you working on your own and then having to come and collaborate, and especially on something that's so well established, as you kind of said before. So how how does the process of having multiple composers work on the same tr- soundtrack start, and how does that kind of stay cohesive? Well, you know, for that for for that game specifically for for Halo, I mean, and, and because it's it's such a well known franchise and universe, it's that's handled by um, the music supervision department at three forty three. So a lot of those were questions I didn't have to answer. I. I, I worked alongside 
uh, Gareth and, and Curtis, but I didn't have to worry about how, you know, think how to divide things up or how to work together. We were each sort of in our, you know, I guess in our sort of lane respectively with, with what we were assigned and, and that's what we did. Um, the only time we really crossed paths was during the recording sessions. Um, and I was, I got involved last. So I think Gareth and Curtis had done one in person and then the pandemic hit. And then we ended up doing all, all our 2020 recording sessions on zoom, which even though the, 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 uh, musicians and the choir were in, um, London, we were on zoom in mm. our respective studios, which was very convenient, but not as fun as doing yeah, it in person. Definitely not as fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that was, I think for me, it was, um, we each just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't designed to be a collaboration. It was designed to just be more firepower essentially to, to just be able to knock out all the music. I, I think it would have been impossible to, to, to do that with one person. There is a ton of music on that soundtrack and there is. all yeah. three of you are phenomenal composers. I've enjoyed all three of you and what you've done in very different things, you know, or, or in the will Thank of you. the wisp was one of my favorite games in 2020 yeah. and big part of that is gareth's work on that soundtrack but you know i i I have to be honest with you and this is this is not to you know brown nose or anything i was listening to the halo infinite soundtrack as i was you know finalizing my touches on these questions and you know there there were some of your tracks and i was like i can't i think i it was maybe please correct me if i'm wrong it was either command spire or it was sequence it was one of the ones in the middle of the soundtrack it had this really stanky bass and i was like where where did this come from and i loved it was it through the trees it might have been that too i i need that to go back has, and listen again. that one has a pretty pretty dominant bass line yeah um and then undercover which you know which is an homage those are both homages you know to to pieces from the original trilogy you can hear some of the uh i don't i can never remember the specific musical term but you can hear some of the um ideas from the older soundtrack or some of the patterns for lack of a better word laced into some of your tracks that you clearly are paying homage to the original soundtrack and that was part of our job was to weave in you know phrases and and melodic melodic material that that was is really part of that's all part of the universe it's we had that was like it wouldn't be halo without that stuff so i think the question for us was how do we weave that in and for me it was really that was fairly open-ended it was kind of like well if something inspires you just put it in there like it had to be you know it wouldn't make sense necessarily to have um like the monk chant or the master chief theme in a banished themed track or anything like that but um it was we there were there was a lot of freedom to just sort of put put melodies in there were some that i i don't even i think there were interpretations of the string melody at the beginning of through the trees i didn't even that was just something i thought i came up with if it sounds like something else it's purely a coincidence but but it's not a total coincidence because i was really immersed in the music of the halo universe at the time and so i'm glad it sounds like something else <laughs> yeah you know and and then what you know i think what's so interesting about infinite too is there's there's all the material like you said the phrases and the melodies that are used from the past games and then there are new themes i mean 
and there's the banished theme, Eshram's theme that Gareth wrote. Um, there's the Harbinger's theme. Um, there's a lot of new stuff in there too. Yeah, that's that soundtrack. You, all three of you did a phenomenal job. I think that's thank you. Honestly, besides the grapple hook in that game, that's definitely my favorite. <laughs> that's my grapple favorite hook part is, of the game. I don't know how. I, I don't think I could go back and play Halo without a grappling hook now, <laughs> dude. For <laughs> real, like that yeah. was. Where was that for twenty years? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's insane. Um, yeah, now we it, have verticality, where it's like I think about you know people have made this joke about Dark Souls, where it's like you they just have to put like a knee wall up in the world and nobody can get over it, right? Because <laughs> there's no verticality, right? Which of yeah. course is you know it's just a joke, but like yeah, it, it makes you once once you have it, it makes you wonder what like something like that. It's another dimension, literally. It's another dimension that you have. Yeah, yeah, you're operating on the y axis as well, and then you're wondering what else am i missing that i don't know about yet yeah you we know? don't know it's like it's like literally getting a new dimension that you didn't know about yeah that's <laughs> insane yeah and that's i think that's really cool that the three of you were working so so much together because like my my vision of what i thought you working on the soundtrack with the other two composers was possibly and this is because i don't have experience in the industry that you're told okay these are the tracks here's where they're going to be placed or not like these are the tracks that you to work on like here are the places these are the number of tracks we need this is the general vibe but no it was you guys were working so closely together on that i think that is awesome we were, we were really working in parallel i think you okay. know we didn't i wasn't i didn't really even know what what gareth and curtis were working on Okay. Um, the music department's job, the music supervisor would tell us, okay, we're, you know, this needs to be for a, there's a combat sequence and it needs to have this level of energy and it needs to incorporate these themes or, or not, you know, or, or it could be totally original. Um, so we were really, that was a situation where, um, there was a lot of guidance by the, by the music department. I think there needed to be there like, and that's the, the vision really came from came from the music supervisor Joel Yarger. Mm. He did an incredible job of of understanding the musical universe of Halo, communicating it and then basically quality controlling it with all of us making sure that it it was just fit this impeccable standard and pro processes creative processes like that I think the, that's where I I get on the other end of that process and I feel like I have grown as a composer. Right. So I think I need both. Like I need, I, I like to be the consultant and figure out what the game sounds like. And I like to, you know, I need to be also pushed sometimes. And I think I, I thrive in both of those situations for totally different reasons. Yeah. Like having some sense of con not necessarily control, but creative control more so, but also the ability to have others say, Hey, like you could do this here and you could shore this up here and i think that like the ability to do both is really really important as a creator in in any field really because if you're unwilling to listen to criticism then what you can maximally bring out of yourself isn't going to be reached if you're no. not willing to listen to not necessarily criticism but critique and yeah it's just feedback but, really and yeah and it is like you, it, it is, you have to be completely selfless about feedback. It's not about, it's not, it's never personal. 
It's always about, does it fit the project? That's the only question that ever matters as when you do this for a living, when you're a composer, I mean, for me, being a composer is about its essential meaning and what differentiates it is I am always there to contribute to something else that is about way more than just my music. So the only question that matters is does, does my music fit the thing, (laughs) you know? And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter how good it is. Like there is no good or bad. There is only a good fit or, or a wrong fit. And obviously we're not, we're, we're only focused on, the good fit. Now that doesn't mean that there can be, I mean, there can be a million different fits that work. I mean, it's not like there's only one way forward. There might be on a game that already has its own sound. But one of the things that I, I've learned really well from teaching this music for games class is that you can take a game. I teach mostly games that I've worked on and you can take a game and there's a lot of stuff that can work. It's just that you have to know what it is and be committed to it. And then be, be willing to work in that design language for that whole process. Mm. That's yeah. That'd be cool to kind of like, I think that's probably a cool experience for you too, to kind of like retroactively look back at what you did and think, Oh, well you probably don't, maybe you do, maybe you don't think about, Oh, maybe I could have done this differently, but like maybe if I did this here, that would have enhanced it even further. And you're kind of showing other people your own your mind and how that works and how that kind of for me if i was a person who was interested in composing i you know for me i i always have the self-doubt whenever i'm creating anything and i think a lot of creators do they have this constant voice whether how depending on how prominent it is in the back of their head saying like ah no that's that's garbage don't do that you know (laughs) and you know to hear someone like you, Joel, who has been able to, you know, kind of fight through that and carve out your own experience within this field. I'm sure it's such a valuable experience for people who are looking to get into it to realize that if you are able to push through, you can create things and it's never done per se. I mean, right. the, the finished product will exist there, but that creative process never quits. You can look at that and approach it completely differently 10 years later. And it could be something completely different or it could be the exact same. Who knows? You, you never know. I mean, at some point you just have to, you, you pick a path and you, and you, I think the key is you just have to know why you picked it. And there can be a lot of different good reasons for picking that path. Um, and then for me, I just usually try to, you just move on. You just, <laughs> those are the decisions I made. Uh, I was, you know, I'm committed to them. I was committed to them when I made them. And then you, that's the only way forward, I think. I but yeah, that. I mean, the, you have to push through like those voices that say, you know, maybe this isn't the right fit or, or what are you doing? Or, you know, like that's all just doubt. Doubt is like one of the most dangerous things that can creep into anything, anything, not just creative, pro- a creative process, but just in, in your life. And you just have to like, you just have to overcome doubt. You just have to be like, no, I'm going to make this. Things might not start out really great. I think like I've, one of the things I tell my class is get, just let go of this idea of nailing things on the first try. It's just not, who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. You can nail it on the first try. It feels great. It feels great when you do it. We need it. I think, you know, I think it's great for the ego. And like, and I think ego, it's okay to like, it's okay to be externally motivated a little <laughs> You know, yeah. I think, I think the, the key is you don't want it to take over. Um, but it's, it's overrated. You learn nothing. 
you learn nothing. You nail it on the first try, you learn nothing. What you learn most, I think more from, I should say, is when, when you don't nail it on the first try and then you have to figure out what you need to do, the work you need to put in then to make it right. Yeah. Once you I, go through that process a bunch of times, that's where the doubt starts to sort of shut up a little bit. Yeah. And then you can be like, no, I, I'm going to make this good. But it might not be good the, on the first iteration. It might take 10. It might take 20. I might have to start four things and throw them out. But I am going to get there because I have done this before and I know how to do it. That's yes. what being a composer is. Or being, you're not just composing, but just creating anything. You know, it's like. It doesn't matter where it starts. It just matters where it ends up. Absolutely. I, I, I wish in my 20s that I knew exactly what you're saying of the power of... <laughs> we all do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The power yeah. of just sitting down, getting your idea onto paper or onto w whatever music program you're using, whatever it is you are doing creative-wise, just getting it down, realizing this is probably not the final draft, and that's okay, and just sitting there living with it and then coming back to it and sa and saying is this it and if it's not yeah. how can i make this better and how not only how can i make this better how can i get it to a place where i am comfortable with it being where it's at um and, and by comfortable mm -hmm. i mean because for some people they are that perfectionist they want they they you know i i think about <laughs> i think about you know there's been this recent trend in music where artists will go back and retweak their songs and then it, their old the song that people listen to for the past month is just gone and that's yeah, because they're perfectionist and yeah and that's that's you're a just whole changing other, it yeah, yeah it and that's it's a, a whole debate. conversation yeah but i mean just being sit, sitting there looking at it and be like is this a representation of what i want it to be am i comfortable with it being that and then you just have it there but getting there is is a much longer process than just to use a sports term, hitting a hole in one in golf yeah. is like you, you, you don't go to play golf. You, and if you don't hit a hole in one, you quit. You, right. you play, you play. That's a good I, don't, I actually don't play golf at all. But yeah. you just, I, I'm, you, I'm terrible, but yeah, same. So yeah, I mean, you know, who's amazing at, at just like who I, I am just in awe of their ability to um, do something realize that it's not the final draft and throw it away over and over and over again until it is Who's that? game developers. <laughs> and you know, who sucks at doing that composers. That? <laughs> that makes and sense. so I, and that is all just, I mean, I'm being a slightly facetious, but not totally. Right. And the reason I bring it up is because I think composers can learn a lot from game developers. I have seen, I, with the games that I've worked on, I have been so impressed. Not, you know, and, not that like throwing stuff away is like, it's hard to do. I mean, it's, it's that whole kill your darlings thing where I, I have seen game developers throw away months of work because they, they, they are willing, they were willing to ignore the sunk cost that they spent on that work in order to then start fresh or, or start with a new iteration of the idea and have it be better. Right. Um, that is really hard to do. It's hard to do in anything you know, the stock market, <laughs> you know, whatever, yeah. like, and I think game developers are really good at it for whatever reason. Maybe it's why they chose to be game developers. I don't know. Yeah. But maybe it attracts a certain mindset. Maybe. And, and 
but I, I, I have, I have marveled at that and just been, it's been a real source of inspiration for me. Not, not that it makes me want to just throw stuff away just for the sake of it. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think, you know, never be afraid to just be like, well, you know what? I don't know if this is working. I'm just going to start fresh. And I, I've, I've done that, you know, plenty of times. And a lot of it is because of just what I've learned from, from working with and watching game developers. There, there's definitely value in it. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that you mentioned Eastward earlier and I'm glad I, I get to talk about it because it's such a magical game and a massive part of that is due to your incredible soundtrack. Um, Thank here you. at Sword Chomp, we voted it as our favorite soundtrack of 2021 Did you really? oh, wow. in Thank our personal end of the year game awards. Yeah, <laughs> There's this one song on there that resonated with me personally a lot. And I think a large part of that is being a percussionist. Um, the cooking song is one of my favorite gaming songs. And if you don't mind, I want to share with you a, why yeah. I think it's so incredible. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that the typical music listener kind of expects melody to come from the usual suspects like vocals or guitar, piano, but people often don't realize that rhythm sections and even percussion can have their own voice. And it's, it can be a very distinct voice. And, Percussion can be melodic at the end of the day. And the fact that you managed to pull off such a catchy tune within the 15 seconds or so with percussion and a very simple synth noise or synth, synth line in the background is, to me, honestly, it is really brilliant. And out of all of your work as of now, Eastward is personally my favorite. I, so you. much so that I, I'm 99.9% .9 sure before we started the show, your phone had a notification and it was a sound from Eastward. Am I wrong in that? I mean, my phone? Yeah. Like, I do have, I have Eastward no notification sounds yeah, on my phone. It, it yeah. Immediately, I got yeah. some, uh, what is it, dopamine in my brain when I heard that <laughs> noise off your phone. But, I mean, how cool is it that fans like myself and others can pick from the vast amount of work that you've done and created and have a completely different answer of what their favorite of your work is. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's really exciting and it's an, I mean, it's an honor that people, it's, it's amazing to see the response. And, and I, I think that that too is like the, the, the idea that, that everyone's got their favorite piece and they're also different is really I think for me, an affirmation of this, of something I alluded to a few minutes ago, which is just that I think any, any experience to be, to feel really alive has to be multifaceted. And so the music of Eastward is not just one thing. It's, it's all, it's a bunch of things that I think are compatible that go together. Um, but you know, some of the pieces are cheerful and some are dark and some are silly and some are sad and some are, sort of like the cooking music it, it it is kind of like it stands it really the cooking music is just sort of designed to complement the animation <laughs> you know it was kind yeah. of a functional piece where it's like that's really designed to just tell the player you are cooking now one day i just got a bunch of my pots and pans and i recorded them and then i made sample banks out of them and then that synth line you talked about that was just like a little thing i put on top to kind of tie it all together it's sort of you know sometimes when you're just sort of like not thinking about it too hard that's when stuff comes out that yeah that yeah. sort of works I, I like 
most of the times when I'm playing a game and it has that little animation and has the little sim- simple music, I usually am like, man, I just want to get to the gameplay. I don't need to watch yeah. this like little cutscene every single time I cooked on that game. I've- I've I sat that. there and I listened because I, 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 I heard that, that and it makes me really happy. Like it. Yeah. 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 I, you know, it was funny over the, the winter vacation. And this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about actually with this exact song is I had finally played breath of the wild for the first time. Oh yeah. Well, th- it's pretty hard to ignore the influence of the cooking music and breath of the wild. That's what I was going to ask <laughs> about. Is, yeah. Was there any influence there? from that? Probably. I mean, it, it cooking is such a big part of that game. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I didn't directly reference anything. Yeah, it, it, that doesn't matter if you did yeah. anyways, because I think that yours is better, to be honest <laughs> with you. I mean, if I'm being straightforward. Well, I, I don't know if I, how much I can improve on anything in Breath of the Wild, but thank you. I'll take it. <laughs> Dude, the, the, the Eastward soundtrack, I was, I was obsessed with it for three weeks straight. I, Were you really? I, it's... I, I like... My 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 commute is basically an hour to my job, an hour from my job, and that okay. involves me walking, train, and driving. Yeah. And just I have my my Jabra headphones on, and I yep. was just listening to that soundtrack nonstop. And there there there's so much there. I I'm in a way I got kind of jealous of your awesome job that you get to compose <laughs> all these amazing things, but also just I was so impressed with how much that music can stand outside of the gaming experience because I think that you could possibly agree and this is not to take anything away from anybody who is composed there are certain musical compositions that when you hear them in the game if you hear them outside of the context of the game they don't resonate as much or they're not as powerful without the visuals and the gameplay elements and then there are other soundtracks that you can really listen to outside of that and the story is just as powerful that each song is trying to tell, no matter how short or how long it is. And this soundtrack for me, that's why I resonate with it so much. And I, I still, I love it. And I, I, I've still been listening to it this year is that the story that each song tells and the greater picture of how everything flows, because I know that story that I can listen to it outside of the game. And it's just, it's still as stunning as the first time I heard it when I played the game. And I think that thank you. It's It's, interesting. Well, I, that's one of the things I, as a, you know, as someone who plays games and grew up playing games and listens to music, I I think for me, the most, and I, I, I've used this before. So I, I, I said this in a, in an interview with Chucklefish, but I really think that this is, this was my goal was it was most meaningful to me when I could, when I had a relationship with, with soundtracks that I loved like the one you're describing. And for me, the best summary, I, the best way I can sort of summarize that relationship is the music is like a souvenir. And, and that's what I valued. And when I would, when I, you know, when I, I would listen to like secret of mana, that soundtrack, mm. chrono trigger, all the, all the, you know, really like my Classics. favorite soundtracks and arguably also the best soundtracks of that era. Yeah. They all did that. They all made me think of the game and remember it, they were like it was like nostalgia for for this world that I experienced through through the story. So that's what I that's what I was going for. I love that. I love that analogy of it being a souvenir. That's exactly what it is. Like it's nothing so dramatic as like 
you had this harrowing, brutal experience or anything like that, but it's you went through this time period in your life of where you experienced something that meant a lot to you, and maybe you don't have the time or responsibilities kind of come in the way, but the music, you can just sit there and you can reconnect with those memories and that time in your life. Yeah. 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 Well done. Well done. I will say that. (laughs) Eastward. Man, I love that soundtrack. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about a very different soundtrack you did really briefly. How unique of an experience was it for you to create your own sounds from scratch when you were working on the Death Stranding soundtrack? Well, I, you know, I can only take, that was kind of a joint credit between Ludwig and me. Yeah. Um, and I, I should say, um, you know, I, you know, I, that's a huge part of, of what, of my creative process. I, I think, um, I have nothing against presets, you know, and presets just for the benefit of listeners is, you know, just sounds that come with pieces of equipment that you have, you know, I tend to not use them because I just like to make my own, you know, and, and I will, it doesn't mean I won't use, I'll use, but I, I think creating sounds, creating a palette is such a huge part of my creative process that it was fun to, when I, my first engagement with, with Death Stranding was, I was just involved as a musical sound designer. I, I just, I helped create a whole bunch of instruments for Ludwig to use on trailers and, um, in, you know, in some of the cues that he was working on. And then eventually I, I got hired to write additional music, but um, and then, you know, of course, the what you might be alluding to is this this sampling, this three day sampling session where we we bought a whole bunch of stuff from Home Depot and spent a lot of time making every sound we could with it. And that yeah. ended up in the game. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, that pat like back to sort of the f- first part of our conversation about palette and electronic sounds. And I, for me that's another dimension that I love having control over as a composer. So it made sense, you know, for kind of what I do and how I work to do that. It was fun to just, just focus on that. Yeah, that would be cool. I, I, I can imagine why you would like to do that so much is because like looking at, I I don't compose music, obviously just looking at presets on various things. When some of my friends have been, creating music whether they're doing their dj work or whatnot when i hear a lot of presets especially drumming presets yeah it it, it makes like drumming presets personally make my skin curl (laughs) i don't like drum presets because they just don't have the natural sound They, they just don't sound natural and i think that process of being able to create your own would really make your music feel more authentic in a way it's to me it it's kind of it it deserve i think a, an original piece often deserves original sounds depending on what you're doing i mean i i want to be careful about saying that because i don't want to sound like a preset snob or anything but right i think if i had one criticism about just like presets is they they are designed to show off the capabilities of a synth often not all, always they're generally a little a lot of times i've found that they're actually a little complicated to be used in a piece of music they're, they they may they may have too many layers or too much too many effects they are designed to sound cool when you're playing them in isolation but when you're creating a piece that's designed you know of its composite parts it's sometimes it's, it can be better to start with simpler building blocks and i think that 
that's where just getting in there and designing a sound in the moment. And for me, it's not, it's just part of the compositional process. I just do it as I'm working. I don't have like, I, you know, cause I, and, and I, that's just me. I think some composers have a day where they just make sounds and then they use those sounds on something else. And that's fine for me. It just, it makes sense. To, I just do it all in the same process. You know, it's like, Oh, I need a bass sound that kind of has some wobble to it or whatever. And it's like, well, I'll just dial it up, you know, on, yeah. on a synth. The thing is, once you learn to synth one synth, you've kind of learned them all to some extent. They're all yeah. kind of similar. It like with, within different synthesis methods, you know, like subtractive synthesis, which is what most synths are. Um, it's so similar. Like, so you just, once you know one, you, it's pretty easy to translate that skill set to a different one. That's cool. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really awesome. I, it's, it's interesting that you, you, you mentioned that because I, I guess presets, I think of presets personally outside looking in as something that is very convenient but also very and this is again outside looking in boilerplate but i'm glad you explained that in that way because it can be viewed as something as a a, a building block you know you can get the basic idea through a preset and then you say okay i want my own idea so i'm gonna make that sound or it can be viewed as somebody who's just getting into music their foundational elements and then when they establish their voice then they can start doing something akin to what you do creating their own sounds yeah yeah but you have to yeah you have to start from something and i think you can get a lot of great ideas from presets especially if you know what where a lot of sound designers start is they start by just tweaking and adjusting the presets where it's like well i like this sound but i wish it were softer or i wish it didn't have this one layer or i wish it had less reverb or whatever and then you go from there that kind of sounds like... Before you like, know it, you're just oh, starting sorry, from... I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I I was going to say that kind of sounds like what's been really popular in pop music recently, which are microtones, which is playing in between the, the half note step up or step down. Yeah. You know, it's, instead of like playing from C to C major, you're playing the, the half in between there, which are those micronotes. That, that's been really popular in music recently, and that, that allows for some creativity as well, so... That's kind of not not identical, but kind of what it sounds like you're saying, adjusting presets a little bit. Yeah, oh, it's different ways of just taking charge of the palette. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. Um, I have just two final questions for yeah. you. Years ago, you stated that the franchises that you would most like to work with are Final Fantasy, Destiny. When where did you find this? And Dark Souls. Oh wow! <laughs> In a way. <laughs> You have come really close to Destiny with your work on Halo Infinite. Obviously not identical, but fairly close. How important do you feel it is for aspiring composers to manifest their dream projects? And what other qualities do you think are important for those wanting to pursue video game composing? Wow, Uh, that's a big question. It's a good question. Because my answer to it is completely different, probably, than what I would have given whenever I gave that answer. <laughs> I would say now, I, I, I would not think in terms of projects. I would think in terms of relationships. So wow. really, it's, it's, and actually, I would say I would, you know, it would be a, it would be, I don't ever want to go on the record of saying that I don't want to do music for Dark Souls. Because I think it would be an incredible experience. But I think what I've learned is just because I am a fan of something doesn't mean I need to work on it. And I love Dark Souls. It's my favorite franchise ever. And Dark Souls 1 is probably my favorite game of all time. But it doesn't... But I think 
working on that would change my relationship with it. So that my favorite thing to play doesn't need to be my favorite thing to work on. And so I think for me, what I want to work on, my dream project now is a project that allows for an exciting creative conversation and some forging of new territory. And I don't even know what that is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so for me, it's not that I wouldn't want to work on those franchises, but yeah, I think like you said, I mean, Halo and Destiny, definitely like there's some thread that, that bonds those two somewhere, you know, like obviously the same developer yeah. um, started, started the Halo franchise, but yeah, I, my, that's, I think that's the answer to that question. I think really the, what, what composers need to do is just, I don't know, like, it's so hard it's to answer this question. Cause there, there is no really good answer because it, it really just comes down to everyone just has to be able to um, be, just be persistent and show up and keep working hard. And it takes a lot of time and mm. that's what it is. And that's why there's no like, well, what do I need to do to do this? And there's no good answer to that because it just means, because the answer, the only answer is just keep showing up. Yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of think about what you were saying earlier. And I think that from my very limited ex experience of creating one of the big things or two of the big things is to have an open mindedness because you may end up, your your creation of something may go into a direction you didn't initially expect or want yeah. it to, but yeah, you have to be open enough to just let that go the way that it's naturally going, not resist that. And it may end up being in a much better direction than you originally anticipated. I think that's... I, a... I totally agree with that. I think open-mindedness is really important. I mean, for me, it's like, I, I if you'd asked me what I wanted to work on at the very beginning of my career, I would have said, you know, electronic music and and like chiptune style scores. And like my first game was a neoclassical, um, the Baroque influenced score that I knew how to write because I had done a bunch of other music, but it wasn't what I thought my career was going to be. And yeah, you have to sort of like, everyone's got this vision of what they think things are going to be like, but you do, you do have to sort of like take, you have to take the opportunities that come your way and do the best you can with them. And that's not even about like settling or anything. That's not about making lemonade out of lemons. That's just about embracing things that come along, even if they're like different than what you expected them to be. And I think, yeah, adaptability and open-mindedness, I think are really yeah. important. Yeah. I think those are huge. And the other one I think is the ability to take critiquing because not in a, I know what I'm doing way. Also not a, I suck. Everything sucks. Kind of way either. You have, you have to be able to take critiquing because that's like you said earlier, it's going to bring out the best in you and the product that you're trying to create for whoever the prospective buyer or potential buyer is who you're trying to sell it to. Yeah. I you, mean, that's you, the job. Yeah. You, you have to be yeah. open or not open. You have to be willing to accept criticism yeah, and not internalize it too much because you're you're doing a job, even if it's a job as awesome as composing and a job as you're as passionate about and you're putting as much much heart and soul into. You still have to be willing to take some level of criticism or critiquing rather, and it's important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Cool. My well my said. final question for you, Joel, is looking back all the way, like all the way back on your childhood. What is the radio show that you created when you were a child that you're the most proud of when you think about um, it to this day? Man. You know, I, 
it's funny. Well, so it's, it, you know, I'm almost like at a loss for words because that was like, that was like my first, those were my first recording projects, me doing these silly radio shows that I presented as if anyone other than me would listen back to them. Right. Um, but really it was just me goofing around. I think for me the really what I, my favorite stuff was just the little, I would like sing these songs and come up with these little melodies. And to me, I think it was really, that was like the, my first kind of composing. That's awesome. I, I, that stuff is so important for, I think us to kind of look back on fondly and also for other people to hear, because we all have those moments, you know, when I would, when I was, uh, 10 years old, I'd go in the shower. We had a little radio in our bathroom and I blare the music and it'd be like classic rock. And I'm sitting in there pretending I'm a front man for some classic rock band. And that influenced my journey to want to play music. And I ended up becoming a drummer out of that. Yeah. Those moments are so important and formulative. And it's, I think it's cool for others to hear that too, because humble beginnings inspire us all. Yeah. I think we have to just, yeah. And like, it's a good reminder too, to just let kids sort of like, if they're passionate and interested in something, just let them do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joel, I mean, I think we did it. I think we, we did got it. it. Yeah. That yeah, was good. a ton of fun. Seriously. Thank good. you yeah, so much for, time. thank you. Thank you for making the time to sit down and answer my questions. Thank you for being so open and uh, yeah, willing to just kind of discuss your career and, how you approach things. I appreciate it a lot. And I hope that other future composers are listening to this and kind of inspired by it and take something away from it. Me too. Thank yeah. you. I, I really enjoyed talking and, and I'm glad to be here. Thanks for yeah. having me. Yeah. If, if I, I don't know if you have anything you'd love to promote or anything that you, you want others to be aware of that you're currently working on or just in general, anything to be aware of, but if if you have anything, I'd love to open yeah. the floor to you to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Solar Ash, the soundtrack should be out soon. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of music on it. And so watch, um, you know, I don't know where it will be, but it'll be somewhere um, from Heart Machine or Annapurna. Um, so that, that's, that's coming. That's a great game, by and the then, way. Great thanks. music. Yeah, thank you. And I can only take... A, a fraction of the credit for it because that was a that was a group effort yeah um and then there's a game i'm working on called the last Clockwinder, which is a, a really interesting game in, in vr it's it's a game about creating machines out of your own clones in this really kind of unique cozy oh. vr or cozy sci-fi world um it's all in vr and so that game is we're working on that that should be out i don't it doesn't have a release date but it's in development um actively um and then there's a there's a few other things that I hopefully can share more about soon. Okay, I'm, I look forward to that. I um, I'm actually playing through Solar Ash right now. I'm about done with that, and uh, I've loved my time with it. I've loved the music. Uh, actually, glad to hear. Hyperlight Drifter was such a huge inspiration for us, kind of starting really? this whole podcasting it's... thing. So yeah, Heart Machine yeah, is great. Great, great company. I'm glad that you yeah, were able to work with them. Me too. I'm really grateful. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Joel, for being here. Thank and you. Thank you. Yeah, my to, pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And thank you to you, the listener. Um, 
we'll be back for another episode here shortly. Thank you so much and take care.